You're listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. Be sure to visit us at hopehullumc.org sermons, where you can subscribe to future episodes of SermonCast and browse our archive of past messages. Thanks for tuning in. Inside most of us is at least a little bit of a people pleaser. We like to be liked, don't we? We don't, many of us don't like conflict, though occasionally you find some folks who just absolutely don't care. Every now and then, most of us like and care about what people think. We tend to want to make other people happy. It's called being a people pleaser, isn't it? Most of us know, however, that being a people pleaser isn't really all that healthy. When we make decisions based on what we think will be popular, oftentimes we make the wrong decision because we think it will be popular. And we all know how difficult it can be, exceedingly difficult, to make the right decision when it's the unpopular decision, when we know we'll be criticized for it. And that brings us to the question at the heart of our text today. For whom do we live? Whose approval do we seek? Whose opinion is most important in the way that we make decisions about our behavior, the way that we make decisions about our decisions, the way that we choose our words, the way that we engage in life? For whom do we live? Whose opinion matters most? Whose approval motivates our actions and inspires our behavior and governs our lives? Those questions are really woven in and out of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, the text we've read together this morning. And as we reflect on that text, the single central point that we've got to wrestle with can't please everyone. To live to please God. Can't please everyone. God's approval is the one that we seek. Paul makes this point by describing his ministry among the Thessalonians when he showed up initially. So sometime before, we don't know exactly when, scholars have some guesses, but Paul showed up in Thessalonica and began engaging in ministry there. And he describes the nature of that ministry in the opening verses of chapter 2. You yourselves know, brothers and sisters, that our coming to you is not in vain. But though we had already been suffered and shamefully mistreated in Philippi, we'll talk about that in just a minute, we had courage in our God to declare to you the gospel of God despite great opposition. He goes on, talks about his labor and his toil in verse 9, how he worked night and day so as not to be a burden on the Thessalonian community, how they were witnesses of his upright and blameless conduct, and how, like a nurse caring for a patient, or a mother caring for a child, Paul and his ministry team gave themselves to care for the Thessalonians. They weren't seeking human approval. They gave themselves wholly because they were seeking God's approval. Paul was not interested in being a people pleaser. He was interested in being a God pleaser. And his purpose in that 
was the growth and development and discipleship of the Thessalonians themselves. He talks about his ministry among them and how he gave himself to the gospel, even though he faced opposition. And he gave himself to the Thessalonians, and he worked night and day, 24-7, giving himself to them to honor God and to please God, regardless of what anybody else thought, so that they could grow in Christ's likeness, so that they could grow as disciples, so that they could take the next step on the path of discipleship following Jesus. Take a look at verses 11 and 12. As you know, we dealt with each one of you as a father with his children. Verse 12, urging and encouraging you and pleading that you live a life worthy of God. Right? Paul determined that he would live a life worthy of God, which means not caving to pressure, not making decisions based on what's popular, not making ministry decisions based on whether or not it would result in opposition or antagonism. He knew he wouldn't be able to make everybody happy. He knew he wouldn't be able to make the authorities happy. He only cared about making God happy and honoring God and seeking God's approval. So he gave himself in this ministry, and in the process of that, he urged and pleaded and, and worked among the Thessalonians so that they could embody the same life so that they could, like him, seek God's approval with the way they use their time and the way they use their energy and the way they use their resources and with their steadfastness. For Paul, there are these two components. The goal of the Christian life, to live worthy of God, to live for God's approval, not others. And the heart of ministry, the, the, the way you get to that goal is by being singly focused, single-mindedly focused on what pleases God. And you can, you, I mean, we know this tension, don't we? I mean, we know what it feels like. We've had moments in our lives, I think, where we are singly devoted to, to God. Maybe it was at the moment of our conversion where we, we meet Jesus for the first time and we experience His grace just flood our hearts and, and there's this experience of reconciliation and you know, a moment before there was distance between us and God and now in this moment there's, there's nearness and there's closeness. Or maybe it was when you joined the church or were confirmed and there's been this long journey, and there's been a journey towards God, and it comes to this singular moment where, where a serious decision and a serious commitment is made in front of everybody. <laughs> and in that moment, we, we feel God's grace, and we experience it, and it's close, and it's near, and, and we, we're all in for the kingdom. I mean, I, I imagine that most of us have been in that sort of experience, that sort of place at some point. And if we have, we know how easily. <laughs> you know, we get to work the next day, and somebody wants this, and the other guy wants that, and my boss wants this, and all of a sudden, how do I make these people happy? <laughs> and our attention gets divided. We begin to get distracted. And over weeks, months, maybe years, we've developed serious habits of just trying to... <laughs> Just kind of keep everybody happy. Keep them at bay. The thing is, if we're focused on that, what are we not focused on? I urge, encourage, and plead with you to live 
a life worthy of God, the one who calls you into his kingdom and glory. So Paul wants the Thessalonians to reflect on this question. He wants us to reflect on the question, whose pleasure will govern your life? The people around you or the one who made you? Will you be a people pleaser or a God pleaser? Paul knows you can't please everyone. He calls us to live in a way that pleases God. So what does this life pleasing to God look like? For Paul, a life pleasing to God is one that celebrates the gospel. Do you hear how many times in this passage, over and over and over again, he talks about the commitment of the people of God to the gospel. It happens again and again. Maybe this afternoon you just want to sit down and read through the first couple of chapters of First Thessalonians, and just, just notice how often Paul talks about the gospel and how committed he is to proclaiming the gospel, the good news that God has come in Christ. When we were far from him, when we stood under condemnation, when the wages of sin, which is death, was well on our shoulders, how God has come in Christ to take that weight on himself in mercy, in his grace, in his love, and with joy, he, he receives all of that darkness and all of that brokenness and all of those just damaging habits and willful disobedience. He, just, he wants to take that on himself and carry it on his shoulders and carry it to the cross and bear the consequences of our transgressions so that when it comes to the judgment, there's nothing negative against us. God has come in Christ to bear the burden of our guilt to reconcile us to Himself. Paul says, when we came to Thessalonica, you received that word, not as mere human words, but as the word of God. And we celebrate the grace and the mercy and the power of God at work amongst you to convict of sin, because that's, it's not fun, <laughs> right? Amen, conviction is not fun. You guys like it then. <laughs> It's no good, right? I mean, you feel bad, but sometimes you need to feel bad. Feeling bad is a sign that, hey, maybe something's not right. Maybe, maybe it's not just a feeling. Maybe the Holy Spirit's at work. Saying, here's some things in life that are out of order. Here's a relationship that's not well. Here's your relationship with God that needs some attention. It needs some grace. It's, and He's the only one that can do that. Paul began to see the gospel work in power to draw people to Jesus. The Spirit to use the gospel to draw people to Jesus. And he celebrates that and points to that as an expression of the life lived worthy of God. A life that pleases God is a life that is marked by love for the gospel. And if you want to have a sense of how much you love the gospel, consider whether or not you love the gospel more than you love the fear of being criticized for loving the gospel. That's what happens in this text. The Thessalonians, you need to understand, are experiencing some sort of persecution. Paul doesn't go into detail. He just mentions a little bit in chapter 1, briefly, in verse 6, the, the, the persecution you received... You receive the word despite whatever persecution it is. He doesn't describe that in detail. He just, they know about it, he knows about it. 
It's presupposed. He mentions it. And then again, towards the end of the text we read this morning, chapter 2, verses 14 and following, you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ that are in Judea, for you suffered the same things they suffered. Someone was opposing them, someone's been opposing you, you have that in common with the churches in other places. So Paul wants to say, look, you're suffering for Jesus, you're committed to the gospel, and this is probably what's going on here based on the evidence of the text. He mentions at the end of chapter 1 how they've turned from idols to serve a living and true God, and that may not, like the full impact of that is easy for us to miss. And because most of us don't have statues of Zeus or something on our mantle. Now if you do, we can talk about that later. But we don't just have a house filled with like little Buddha statues or other things and we don't think of ourselves as idol worshippers, but in the ancient world, honoring the pantheon of Greek and Roman gods was at the heart of the social life of the entire city. I was doing some reading on this maybe a year or so ago. A guy named Cicero. I think it was Cicero. Ancient politician, rhetorician. And he remarked that the worship of the gods is the fabric of the life of the community. Right? The worship of Zeus and Asclepius and Demeter, like all these gods. And Thessalonica was a, had a lot of temples. Like every deity had their spot. And you'd go and pinch some incense over here for that one and maybe offer some sort of offering for this one over here. And this guy, it worked its way into, into your business life because if you were a part of, you know, the Metal Workers Association, guess what you did when you got together to get the stuff that you need and kind of have the business meeting, decide who's going to be president next year, all that kind of stuff. The worship of whatever God was the patron of that guild was a part of it. So if you're going to do business, you've got to worship idols. And if you don't, imagine the social pressure. So when Paul says, you Thessalonians, turn from idol worship to worship the living God, which means you're not going down to the temple and your neighbors notice and they're feeling, and you know, you know how it is when you do something, you give it up, and the people who used to do it with you are kind of looking at you like, what in the world's going on here? I'm not real. Like, are you judging us? <laughs> are we not good enough for you anymore? Because you've got religion now or something? And those kind of pressures come in, and that kind of stuff happens very similar, even more so in the first century. You stop going down to worship the gods, people are going to notice, and they are not going to like it. You'll be criticized, you'll be ostracized, you'll be opposed, you'll be antagonized, and that's exactly what was happening, happening to the Thessalonians. Happened all over the place. Paul went all over the place, and riots followed him everywhere he went. People were up in arms. good example of this comes in Acts 16 and 17. Before Paul got to Thessalonica, he went to Philippi. And while he was in Philippi, he's preaching... And there are these couple of guys who have this slave girl, and the slave girl, they're kind of, she starts following Paul around. And she's following Paul around, and she's shouting behind him. This is, this, it's, it's kind of entertaining, actually. Try to imagine Paul, and uh, his ministry team is there, whoever's with him, they're walking along, and uh, there's this girl, 
We don't know how old she is. Is behind them, and she's a slave, like a fortune teller. She has a, a spirit of fortune telling, Paul says. And so she's walking behind Paul, and she's shouting out, These men are slaves of the Most High God, who proclaim to you a way of salvation. So whatever demon is working there is using her to criticize Paul and draw attention to what he's doing. What's funny is she kept doing it for many days, and then it says Paul, comma, very much annoyed. You ever have an experience like that? Matt, comma, very much annoyed. <laughs> you know, committee chair, comma, very much annoyed. Something like that, right? So Paul, it, it's almost like he's not just wanting to deliver people from demons. He's just frustrated that the demon won't shut up, right? So here he is. Paul, very much annoyed, turns around and says to the spirit, I order you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And, it, and, and the demon left. The spirit left in that hour. So what do you, how do you think the guys who were making money off of this felt about it? They weren't happy. Anytime your religion messes somebody with somebody else's income, expect some opposition, okay? Verse 19, when her owners saw that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas. So imagine, I mean, here they are. Paul's like, ah, oh, just would you leave us alone? In the name of Jesus Christ, be gone. These guys see it happen, so they walk up and they just grab, I mean, they grab hold of Paul and Silas, and drag them into the marketplace before the authorities. So it's like, citizens arrest, you're coming with us. When they brought them before the magistrates, said, these men are disturbing our city. They are Jews. Anti-Semitism is a very old thing. They are Jews and are advocating customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to adopt or observe. And you see the gospel and the values of the culture collide headfirst. These guys are ministering healing to the oppressed. And it's affecting my bank balance. Lock them up. Paul says, do you love the gospel more than you love your freedom? live worthy of God. That story goes on a bit. This is uh, one of the, you know, they, they, they beat them, lock them up. Uh, they pray in, the, you know, in prison. They're not grumbling. They're praying, and uh, they end up being set free miraculously. They head off to Thessalonica after that and some other places, and then they come to Thessalonica. And Paul, like he normally does, starts preaching. Right? Little prison's not going to keep this guy from proclaiming the gospel. He starts preaching, talking about Jesus, and people start believing in the Messiah. And we get to verse 5. Some of the folks, some of the Jews become jealous, and with the help of some ruffians, right? Get that. I mean, ruffians. You run into one of those guys lately? With the help of some ruffians, they form a mob. Like, think about it. If you went into a town to plant a church and just start talking about Jesus, and all of a sudden the mob shows up, like a, the posse comes around, and drag you in front of the authorities again. While they were searching for Paul and Silas, they can't find them right away, uh, to bring them to the assembly, you know, try and have some legal opposition to them one more time. They, when they, they couldn't find Paul, so they go to this guy named Jason, bring him out of his house, shouting, and get this, these people have been turning the world upside down, and now they've come here. Kind of a follow Jesus, change the world thing, right? Their enemies realized that they were changing the world. 
These people with their gospel, with their good news, turning the world upside down. Really, they were turning it right side up. We know that. But from the perspective of their opponents, they're messing things up. And Jason, they say, has entertained them as guests, and they're acting contrary to the decrees of the emperor. Right? You can't have Jesus and the emperor because both of them make claims to universal lordship, and you've got to pick one. Saying there's another, they, they, they are acting contrary to the decrees of the emperor, saying there's another king named Jesus. They are, the Christians are going around, Philippi, Thessalonica, Corinth, other places, saying, guess what, there's another king out there, and his name is Jesus, and he requires your believing obedience. He died for you to rescue you, and he wants you to be his. And people did not take kindly to it. Paul wants to say, hey, Thessalonians, I'm praying for you. I'm encouraging you. I love you. I'm grateful for you because whatever's going on, this, this is the kind of stuff they were facing. Right? He doesn't fill it out in 1 Thessalonians, but we can read Acts 17 and find out the kind of stuff that was going on amongst the Thessalonians. And Paul wants to encourage the Thessalonians. I, I pray for you constantly, over and over, every day, that you'll be able to continue to persevere. And I'm so grateful that you love the gospel, that you love the cross, that you love Jesus more than you love your freedom, your life, your social stability, your economic stability. I'm so grateful for that. And in that interaction, the question is presented to us. Can't make everybody happy. Live to please God. What does that look like? It looks like loving the gospel, the evangel, the good news of the cross and the power of God and his love in Jesus more than everything else. And friends, we live in what they call a post-Christian society, don't we? Which means, you know, 50 years ago, everybody went to church pretty much. Not everybody, but lots of people, especially Bible Belt, that's where we are. The world has changed, hasn't it? The world has changed dramatically. You can't just assume people share your values anymore. There was a day where you could, mostly. That day is gone. And a lot of people are really upset about that. Strange new world. We're not quite sure how to maneuver it. Somebody suing somebody for just believing what their, you know, their religion. Am I going to get criticized if I actually, you know, fess up as a Christian? Are people going to make judgments about me and stereotype me in my workplace if I own Jesus there? And we get kind of stressed out and we get kind of worried about it. Friends, I say, what an opportunity. What an opportunity. To embody a love for Jesus that clearly and unquestionably is our highest love. If you love Jesus despite opposition or potential opposition, clearly Jesus is the highest love. If we aren't willing to own Jesus in the face of opposition, I just want to keep people happy. <laughs> that's, the, that's the attitude, isn't it? 
It's, it's not, it's really a question of love. Who do I love more? My safety, my security, or my Lord? <laughs> That's a hard question, isn't it? And if you're willing to answer that question and be committed to Jesus, it is an opportunity to go leagues deeper in your walk with him. It is an opportunity to take the next step on the path of discipleship. What does it look like to love Jesus more in a post-Christian world where it's not a given that people know Christ and walk with him and share, and even if they don't know him, generally share Christian values? The world is different. But that presents for us a spectacular opportunity to very clearly, very clearly embody an abounding love for Jesus. You can't please everyone. Live to please God. The whole people-pleaser people thing is, is interesting because we get sucked into it, don't we? I mean, even if we're not just obsessively a people pleaser, we still want, like, generally, we want people to not be mad at us, <laughs> right? It's impossible to actually succeed at that. Like, I mean, just take a look around the room. It's impossible to make our family happy all the time and our church happy all the time and our coworkers happy all the time and our boss happy all the time. And, you know, it's just not going, our kids, it's not going to work. We give so much energy to something that is fundamentally impossible. It cannot be done. Uh, our previous bishop, uh, after I finished seminary, pulled a group of young pastors together, which was exciting for us because you don't expect necessarily right out of seminary to, get to spend a lot of time with your bishop, but we did, and it was uh, a, a great time to learn a lot about the conference and the church and just kind of how things go. But he made this statement one day. It's really stuck with me. He said to all of us, and we're all within a couple of years out of seminary, early in our ministry season vocation, he said to us, he said, if you think you can make everybody happy in your church, go get a different job. So the next time you're mad at me, think about that. <laughs> it doesn't work. And it doesn't make for a healthy church if we're all just trying to keep each other happy. Now, that does not mean we just need to be jerks. It doesn't mean we need to intentionally alienate each other. It doesn't mean we need to just, well, I don't have to keep anybody happy, so I'll just do what I want to do. That's not, like, that's not the alternative. What does it look like to please God? What does it look like to be fully, completely, unreservedly given to Jesus? What does it look like to say, Holy Spirit, I want you to have all of me, like we're saying, just... Take my life, take my whole being, take my, my mind, my thoughts, my emotions, my will, my tongue, my hands. Take my whole self. If the love of Jesus is overflowing in your hearts, you're probably not going to be just an alienating jerk. <laughs> but at the same time, you're not going to be just, how do I keep all these people happy? You know, that's not, it's, there's this different way. And it's an eyes on Jesus kind of way. It's what holiness means, friends. We talk a lot about holiness. Paul's going to talk about holiness later in this letter. Eyes on Jesus. Does he have 
my whole heart. You cannot make everyone happy. It's impossible. So do the one thing that you're called to do and live worthily of God. And we don't do that to get God's favor, do we? This is not a, all right, I'm going to live to please God so that he'll be pleased with me and I can go to heaven or something like that. That's not, right? Paul is very clear the Thessalonians already have God's favor. They are his children. He is at work among them. The Spirit is present and the Spirit is working powerfully in them. They're not trying to stand firm and trying to do better so that God will just think well of them. God already loves them. That's what the cross is about. When we were enemies of Jesus, He gave His life for us to demonstrate His love for us. You don't have to earn His favor by living well. So why do we live worthy of God? Because we're grateful. He loves us. More than we can imagine. When we were far from Him, He came to us. When our backs were turned to Him, He reached out to us when we were holding Him away. He drew us near in love and died for us. We already have His favor. The question is, how are we responding to it? We don't live to please God so that He'll be pleased with us. We live to please God because we're grateful for His grace. John Wesley knew about it. 18th century England, the only place preaching happened was in a pulpit. If you've uh, seen pictures or been over there, you know the pulpits were kind of like deer stands. They had to climb a ladder, and they were kind of tight. And if you moved around as much as I do, you probably would have fallen out. Uh, <laughs> I've always been terrified of being appointed to a church with one of those, like, things. Uh, I feel very constrained, kind of claustrophobic. Uh, Wesley bucked the system. He realized that there were people working in the coal mines and working in the fields who would never set foot in one of the rooms of the church. So what did he do? He chose to pursue God's approval, not human approval, and he did it by preaching in the fields. Now that may not sound like a big deal to us, because maybe when you were in college, there was somebody standing outside one of the buildings shouting about the Bible or something. Or maybe you've seen some street preachers here and there when you travel. Guess what? John Wesley started it. <laughs> you didn't do that before. And he wrote in his journal, he, he understood that it was not something you do, and he faced significant criticism for it. And he wrote in his journal on April 2nd, 1739, about the first time he did this outside Bristol, England. At four in the afternoon, Wesley wrote, I submitted to be more vile. Did you catch that? <laughs> you know, let's make the gospel vile again and follow Wesley. At four in the afternoon, I submitted to be more vile. People don't do this kind of stuff. And proclaimed in the highways the glad tidings of salvation. And thousands of people showed up. People who work on farms and people who work in fields and people who work underground in the coal mines and alcoholics and people who are addicted to substances and people who are broken and who would never walk into the doors of the church because as soon as they do, the people up on the higher places look down their nose at them and kind of raise their glasses. And it's that, what? Wesley said, I'm coming to you because the gospel is more important than what my clergy colleagues think of me. 
Wesley knew he wouldn't be able to keep everyone happy. So he set his sights on pleasing God. And that's the question we have to ask. For whom do we live? Whose approval do we seek? People in the room or the Lord Jesus Christ who reigns at the right hand of God the Father Almighty? You've been listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hole United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this message, consider sharing it with a few friends. Remember to visit us at hopeholeumc.org sermons and subscribe to get notified when new content is posted. Thanks for listening.